Hello and welcome to Dinesh Warda Cities ABC Open Business Council series. We are a fast-growing YouTube podcast for the Leadership channel, focused on profiling the global leading inspiring people, CEOs, authors, technologists and academics that are changing and creating new solutions for the world we live. We highlight ideas, products, platforms, inventions and software books and solutions to the multiple problems we are facing nowadays especially when it comes to our cities our countries our nations and our um, as well ecosystems where we are especially more and more digital ecosystems and we are as well looking at specifically areas like uh, how we are coping with uh, the fourth industrial revolution concepts like the society 5.0 and as well all the areas of digital transformation um, fintech uh, AI, blockchain, and a lot of different things that are critical for our days. In this platform, we've been actually uh, profiling a lot of different global players, governments, ministers, and as well, on our focus is mostly try to make sure that we look at people first of all. So this podcast series are produced and distributed on our platform, citiesabc.com and openbusinesscouncil.org and syndicated in the platforms intelligenthq.com, fashionabc.org, edgefink.com and tradersdna.com. So I would like to welcome today Max Lattenschlager. I probably I don't know if I, uh, if I spell it correctly, but Max will tell us. So Max is the co-founder and managing director and COO of Iconic Holding, a global crypto asset manager that started his career as a management consultant where he advised Fortune 500 companies for the steel, utility and retail industry on topics like digitization, project management and IT integration. Max has transitioned from private equity and asset management group with $40 billion under management and assets, um, then joined the FinTech company Builder where he built several alternative finance startups from scratch together with management team. He holds a BA in international management, an MBA, is Harvard educated and completed the Charter Alternative Investment Analyst designation. And additionally, he serves on the supervisory board of MLP, Germany's biggest independent financial advisory group, and is personally invested into several startups and as a business angel as well. Welcome to our series, Max. You have much more in your profile, but I try to highlight the summary. I would like to hear a bit about your history. So uh, German, but as well Harvard educated and they've been working in big corporations, but as well in FinTech and startups. So a bit of um, your history, your education, and where do you come to get where you are right now? Yeah, probably I start with school then. So I was not a very good student. Um, actually, my um, degree back then was quite bad. And I thought about, okay, what can I actually do? And I thought, okay, studying business is never a mistake. Um, my biggest passion actually was more for natural sciences like biology and nanotechnology, um, genetics and stuff like that. But I thought, okay, that's my passion, but I could always combine it with a business, for example, later. This is why I decided to study business. Then I finished my bachelor degree and thought, okay, what is out there where I can really learn something, where I can really optimize myself, my working attitude, where I can get in where I can get insights into the industry and what kind of things are happening. And this is why I started as a management consultant and looked in topics like digitization and IT integration, as you have already mentioned. And then actually on a personal level, 
um, alternative finance became very, very interesting to me. So I then took some time and reflected like the last years when I was working in consulting, if this is actually the right road for me to go. And I decided it isn't. I have to do something in finance and in fintech. I think the world is changing. And this is how I ended up in the fintech space, more or less. So I want to ask, uh, so um, although you said you were not a very good student, you actually ended up actually in Harvard and you had a, an MBA. So you actually, you did something very good. Uh, I would like to hear a bit about that because it's interesting. I think especially people listening to us, we have people from all over the world, actually a lot of people from Germany as well. But I'm interested to understand from that trajectory of uh, your interest in different areas to come back to alternative finance to as well to the startup and technology world, how did you went through this? Because I think the devil is on details, but as well as interesting for people listening to us, especially students or, or business school uh, people, but as well any other entrepreneurs. But I think we all learn with our experiences. I mean, when I mean school, I actually mean high school. So I was very bad there just because, I mean, there are so many things that I was just not interested in. Yeah. And I mean, I think for me, the most important thing of my life is to evolve as a human being. And I think this like soft skills, you don't learn them at school. You, don't, you learn them when you are out with friends, you learn them when you are drinking maybe at night, you learn them when you talk to people and when you have a good time together. And I think this has always been uh, my primarily or my pr primary focus. Um, it actually changed me because you already mentioned, yes, I went to Harvard and I did my MBA at a very good business school. It changed with my, with my working attitude, I think. Because uh, when I started in consulting, I saw, okay, now you have to work like 12, 14, 16 hours a day and you have to get uh, certain things uh, finished. And I think this was an extremely important point um, in life where I completely changed my attitude and my working ethics to a very positive way fantastic so one question i have that i think it's interesting for me i'm i'm very so i, I am a bit of a mixed culture because i'm portuguese a bit french and as well i've been living five years in sweden and now 10 without interruptions actually between sweden and denmark and now 10 in the uk in london so um i would like to hear a bit about that because the, the german culture is very specific. It's very academic driven, especially the business world and the financial world. Most of the people in big positions in Germany have a, a master or an MBA or actually a PhD. And as well, the business world is very different from the rest of the world. So I would like to hear that part, especially the financial as well. Um, can you tell us a bit that, especially being German, uh, studying in the US, in, in, in Harvard, and as well, all these different things, like you said, the, the experience with the business world and the different areas? Germany, we are not, I would say on average, we are absolutely not risk-seeking. So all the friends I went to school with that I started with, I mean, everyone was basically looking for a corporate job somewhere, somewhere where you have your fixed earnings, where you have a certain degree of security. Um, and yes, where there is like a structure around you that also protects you from risks. Like you have your insurance covered and you have your holidays. You have like all of those uh, security um, items uh, integrated. For me, it was always different. Maybe it's also because my father also founded a company when he was young. I was, my dream was always to found something, to do something from scratch, to build something. Um, and I think this is where the German environment is not ideal. Because to give you an example, if you found, if you found a startup in Germany and you fail with the startup, then everyone is pointing at you and said, yeah, he should have 
gone with his corporate job because see, he was uh, failing. In the US, for example, they would say, great, you failed because now you have learnings, now you can create your new startup. And for example, the average uh, Silicon Valley uh, millionaire is uh, 40 years old and has already founded uh, five startups. So on average, those millionaires, they failed with three startups before. And I think this is something which I would not only say is a German problem, I think it's a continental European problem. I would maybe exclude England, Britain to a certain extent, but I think it's a problem that we are having in general in Europe. And it also has to do, I think, with how venture capital money is getting deployed because the tickets are way smaller. Normally, it's very, very KPI driven in a traditional way. So they are looking for revenues, they are looking for customer numbers and stuff like that. And the KPI Silicon Valley companies, for example, or for example, are looking for are completely different. They think big, they have a huge vision and they go in with huge tickets to support this vision because they have a huge trust in the, in the team and the area they are working with. And also ourselves, I mean, we also invested into blockchain startups and I'm also a business angel. For me, when I look at companies, I don't necessarily look at the financial model or whatever. I look at the team and I look at the industry because I think a great team and a great industry will always, um, will always succeed somehow because you can pivot 10 times yeah, in two years. That's absolutely possible. And I think this is the major difference maybe between the US and I would say continental Europe that we are less risk seeking here. And for me, it was also extremely important to get my first experiences in the corporate world because you have to know how these companies are working. And then also to um, see how a startup is getting created. This is why I joined the company builder to actually create startups from scratch without it um, being my own startup. And yes, now I um, founded Iconic four years ago. Um, I founded now another startup in the health tech space, um, which is still on stealth mode. And I'm very active as a business angel. So I love the startup environment. I love everything that it offers and I would encourage more people to do so. No, I, th I think I subscribe 100%. And even here in the UK, uh, although in the last, especially five, six years, there's a much more culture related with startups, especially since London Tech City and Startup UK started. But the, the point as well is that, uh, and actually you have to separate London from the UK. So yeah. there's a bit more of attitude towards entrepreneurship, but still the, the, the problem is the same. And as well, me being Portuguese and a bit French, I completely subscribe with you. And I think you're right about people are afraid of entrepreneurs. And I think that's why Europe is dying as a, as a business continent. If you look at most of the business drive and as well the success of the world economy, Europe is really getting, yeah, not, not, we still have a lot of things, but we're having a lot of issues as well. So this is key, especially in a future and present that is getting out of the conventional uh, corporate conventional job for life, which doesn't exist anymore. So I, I would like to, to go. Um, so before we go to your companies and I would like just one question that I think I'm particularly interested. So as someone that has been bridging both the corporate um, and investment world and as well, the startup and technology world, and then as well, the blockchain and tech world. So this is kind of very different worlds. So I would like to see how you've been ping-ponging from this and as well, how do you make the bridge between these three worlds? Because they complement each other, but they're very different at the same time. Yeah, they're absolutely different. I mean, 
when I worked in consulting, I was uh, I was in a suit every day and I wore a tie every day. I mean, this is only like one out of 10,000 examples how they are different. And also, when I mean, the good thing is now at Iconic, I can combine all of those because we are investing into startups. We are a growth company in the financial industry, but we are also talking to the towers behind me. Yeah. So I think you have to combine all of this knowledge. But for me, the way startups operate is way more efficient and fast. And I think this is actually the biggest benefit because you have less budget, you have less people, but you're way more flexible and you're quicker. I mean, if we have a meeting, for example, we if we schedule a meeting with an asset manager, we would normally schedule maybe 45 or maybe 60 minutes because I think everything is set within 45 or 60 minutes. If something great comes out of it, then you can still schedule something for two or three hours. And in the corporate world, for example, they would always go like for a three hour meeting where like 10 parties are involved and it's not efficient at all. I think this is, this is a huge difference for me. And then also the mindset. I mean, the people you are, um, you are meeting. If you are in the corporate world, on average, there's a higher level of risk aversion and less passion for it. Because every founder I meet, it doesn't matter if this is in Germany, in France, in Portugal, or in the US, they are normally very, very passionate about what they are doing. And they never say, I'm, I'm working too much, for example. Also for me, it doesn't matter if I work at two o'clock at night and then at six o'clock in the morning again. And because it's always fun, it's part of my life and I love what I'm doing. And I think this separation of working and living is outdated. Although we are saying this and for us is a common sense, I think the society around us is not still there. And I think we have a big challenge to go. So I want to touch, uh, um, I know to go to Iconic Holding, which is the biggest thing, but as well from your career, and you mentioned that you were in um, some companies with $40 billion in assets, um, and as well, we work in private equity. Do you want to just be, give a bit of context? Because I think German is well, it's more well known probably because of its engineering and automobile industries, but it's quite strong as well in, in um, investment and private equity. And as well, Frankfurt, where you are, is, is one of the biggest uh, financial centers in the world. And I think right now with the, the massive, I don't know, I, I'm a huge uh, critic of Brexit, so, but I think with the Brexit, I think Germany is going to be probably <laughs> skyrocket out of this. So a, a bit of your background on these areas, I think it's interesting for our audience and even for people that want to know more about you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, um, still, if you look at private equity funds, for example, I mean, I mean most of them are still lo located out of London, yeah? Uh, within Europe uh, or they're primarily in the US. Then you have uh, a lot in Lu Luxembourg, of course, and a few in France. Um, I, I was working on the fund of funds level. So actually we due diligence, not the targets, not the underlying companies. We were uh, due diligence the different um, private equity strategies. So we were looking at distressed debt funds. We were looking at turnaround funds, at leverage buyout funds, management buyout funds, and then actually combined different funds into a fund of fund vehicle, then, then offered you a more diverse um, yeah, um, sample of private equity strategies. I think Frankfurt is a great place to be because here, here is a lot of capital. You have a lot of family office here, offices here. You have the asset managers. 
And private equity, I think, is slowly also becoming more important. Because I think also to come back to your question before, if you look at the mindset in the US and the mindset in Europe, you just have to look at our very different investment models. The endowment model, for example, that you have in the US that is one of the most successful investment models of the last decades has a huge allocation to alternative um, assets. So you have a huge allocation to private equity. You have a good allocation to venture capital. You invest into commodities, infrastructure, hedge funds. Normally, a traditional German well-balanced portfolio would have stocks, bonds, real estate, gold, and that's it. So I think that's also a huge difference. Um, but this is slowly changing. Also, we have another startup here. It's called Moonfair, where you can invest on their platform with comparably small tickets into private equity vehicles. So I think also this space is changing. And I mean, the ultimate goal for me is that you have a liquid market for illiquid assets. And this, of course, later we will probably touch on that because with the help of blockchain and tokenization, of course, we will be able to make those illiquid asset classes liquid and create a market for it. And I think this will increase um, investment inflow significantly. Yeah, it's, it's a big challenge that we're facing right now. And I think especially this brings me to my next question that is about uh, Iconic Holding. So Iconic Holding is particular, um, well, cutting edge because you, you are a global crypto asset management uh, at Quarter Precise in Frankfurt, but as well with office in Singapore and New York. And as well, you've been uh, a, a bit of the world first decentralized venture capital group and the award winning as well blockchain accelerated program. So uh, you've been touching a lot of different things from crypto to blockchain, which is completely different things, but complementary. Um, and as well, uh, a trading and asset management that uses both conventional assets and non-conventional assets. So we are in the middle of another crazy uh, push towards Bitcoin in particular and crypto that reaches, it still didn't reach the craziness of 2017, especially the entire crypto world, because in 2017 we went to 700 billion. Now we're still in 500, but the, the Bitcoin actually passed the benchmark, I think the biggest price so far. So how do you see this kind of evolution, especially in what is iconic holding for people that, uh, that that's two questions here, sorry, I want to separate. But I think the first one is what is iconic holding and the second a bit of the context, how you make the bridge between crypto and the most uh, part of the VC and they make the bridge between this. Yeah. So Iconic, held, uh, Iconic Holding is uh, divided into three different business areas, I would say. The first one is Iconic Lab. Iconic Lab is an early stage blockchain investor. We invested into 11 uh, blockchain startups there, completely industry agnostic. So you just have to use blockchain in an industry where we be believe it will make a huge difference. This could be the utility space, this could be supply chain, this could be data monetization, that could be health, that could be real estate, or this could be trade finance, for example. I think there are a lot of industries where the use of blockchain makes um, a lot of sense. We invested into 11 startups so far, out of them 10 were very successful and also raised money in their Series A rounds. In total, they raised more than 30 million euros after we invested into them. Um, our latest investment was uh, this year, uh, Captain Bitcoin from the UK. Um, and yes, we invest off balance sheets. So we invest tickets between 50 and 150,000 from our own balance sheet. And we might change it in the future to a limited partner structure because we have a very, very good track record. 
And I think blockchain is still a very, very hot topic to invest in, especially in the industry and for mass adoption. The second uh, business unit we are having, or the second entity, is Iconic Funds. It's our primary focus at the moment. Um, what we are doing there is we create traditional financial vehicles that have crypto as an underlying. One example is, for example, our um, crypto index fund that we have uh, in Malta, which invests into the top 20 cryptocurrencies by market capitalization. And then we have a few other products that are at the moment um, in the approval process here with the BaFin, with the German regulator, and will be exchange traded in Frankfurt. Um, so what we are trying there to give you, or the general vision is to make crypto assets accessible in a secure way to everyone on the world who has a bank account, basically. Because the people, if, if you now take like 50, 60, 70 year old people, they would rather invest into a fund structure that they already know from their equities, maybe from bonds, uh, instead of signing up at a crypto exchange at Binance and to buy uh, Bitcoin directly. And also, they probably wouldn't be able to um, create the wallet infrastructure that is needed for it. And um, the third piece is what we call the multi-manager. It's based out of New York. And basically, the licenses and the infrastructure we are having in crypto, we are licensing it out to external asset managers that they can, so that they can launch their crypto quant strategies through our platform. So far we have on board, we have due diligence 50 asset managers that wanted to go through our platform. And we have just onboarded two, Napoleon and Blue Sky, that are two hedge fund strategies that are launching uh, through our infrastructure and provide hedge fund strategies in the crypto space. So in general, early stage investments, passive exposure through our own investment vehicles, and active hedging exposure through external asset managers that issue through our platform. Very impressive. So one of the questions I have, being a German company with the global footprint, how do you manage with the regulatory part of that? Because it's, I know that, that right now, well, we are a bit in the bridge that finally big banks and big uh, regulators are starting to accept crypto. But until now, I, I recall just one year or two years ago, you would go to a bank and mention that you work with blockchain, it would be blocked. Although even the bank yeah. would be probably work on blockchain. So how do you manage? And I know that Germany is still very risk averse, although there's a lot of uh, case studies of especially fintech and blockchain. Actually, I've been working and investing in some companies over there. But I know that Germany is probably the most uh, special on data is the most privacy sensitive country in the world. And there's all the regulatory part, although it's quite open, it's still very conservative. So a bit, how do you manage all these different things? Mm -hmm. Actually, this is something, um, this also goes back to your question with differences between the US and Europe. And actually, why I'm still optimistic for Europe is exactly because of crypto and fintech, because we have two competitive advantages, in my opinion, that are extremely important. The one is open banking through PSD2. We can create startups here that have access to APIs to all of your uh, insurance products, banking products, and so on. We can create things that would never be able in the US because we have that open banking API structure through PSD2. The second piece is Germany is the first big re regulator in the world who actually gives you a crypto custody license if you are a bank. And that's this is like the step that makes crypto institutional great. 
Because if your bank actually is allowed to store your cryptos and has a license for it, then it's really getting interesting for um, institutional investors. So I actually believe through crypto or through the crypto custody license and through open banking, actually in Europe, or in this case, in Europe or in Germany, we have actually severe competitive advantage over the US. And I would encourage everyone to also play this uh, regulatory arbitrage that we can do there. Um, in the US, I mean, if you look, look for example, and at investment vehicles um, for cryptos, you just have the trusts, like a Grayscale trust and stuff like that, that are not, I mean, compared to an exchange traded product here on Xetra on the um, German stock exchange, um, it's not a good product. So I think we really have advantages here and I think we can um, definitely leverage that situation. And that's why my co-managing partner and co-founder, Pat, he's from the US, for example. He normally sits here on the other side um and he's also very very happy that we are in germany we could we could do or we are doing a lot of stuff in the us but at the moment we are ex actually extremely happy to be in germany and oh, that's very positive and i i like always a positive focus because it's what we need that more than ever but it's great as well i know that the germany is a highly innovative country um and as well in terms of patents i think is number one in the world or something like that and as well in terms of uh um, I know fintech uh, Berlin has been one of the centers for fintech innovation worldwide that they mentioned uh, open banking is particularly interesting. So I want to touch two things before I, I want to go a bit more on blockchain and crypto. So in terms of you, you mentioned that you've been uh, investing in a lot of companies, um, a lot of startups and as well a lot of vehicles. Anything you want to mention, you touch one or two, but uh, any specific case studies that I like to our audience or any career highlights with your investment that are prove quite some successes at all for people to understand some potential fast growing companies over there in Germany or coming back from your lab? Um, I'm a huge proponent of what I call uh, theme investing. Um, so I would, I mean, my best investments were always when I was extremely convinced of a certain industry or a certain area and then got passive exposure to it. So for example, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of um, hydrogen, for example. I believe that one day, or even in the near future, we will have trucks, we will have ships, at a certain point, maybe even cars that are driving with hydrogen. And I don't, and I believe that's our future. So one and a half years ago, I said, okay, how can I get exposure to that space? And I looked at certificates, I looked at indices, and then I found an index which actually covers the 10 biggest companies in the hydrogen sector for e-mobility. And I invested into it and uh, it made me now within the last 12 months, it made me 200%. So I think this is a good example of, I'm not an expert in hydrogen per se. I cannot evaluate the single companies, but I'm extremely on a macro level, I'm extremely convinced of the space. And this is why I get passive exposure through an index product on it. And that went very well. And the same with crypto. I work in crypto every day. I have, of course, opinions to certain coins. But at the end of the day, I believe in crypto in general. I believe in Bitcoin as gold. I believe in Ethereum as an infrastructure. I believe in to a lot of more coins. And that's why I decided to put all my money personally um, into a passive product that uh, covers the top 20 cryptocurrencies. Um, so my advice here for let's say liquid assets is 
be convinced on a macroeconomic level on a certain development or a certain trend that is happening and then try to find passive diverse exposure to that field uh, with uh, low fees. That would be my suggestion. On the business angel side, um, I look into all industries where I believe um, there's a lot of potential. So personally, if you ask me about my favorite topics for the next 10 years, I would say it's def definitely uh, in the genetic space, uh, CRISPR. For me, it's absolutely the microbiome in the health sector. Um, it's definitely for me crypto and it's hydrogen. That are like the four topics. If I had to close my eyes and just leave the money somewhere for 10 years, I think this would be the four areas where I would be uh, investing. Very interesting. And it's four areas definitely that I kind of correlate as well. So one, one thing related to your crypto and the portfolio they've been doing, and especially someone that is quite an expert in crypto. So we are among a, a new, let's say, spring of, of crypto. I don't know what name we can use it. But, um, but we are still having a lot of different velocities. So we have uh, Ethereum in one end coming up with a, hopefully a new, a new uh, variation. We have uh, Bitcoin, of course, in its bigger moment in history. And we have a lot of other coins that are growing. So do you want to give us a bit of your kind of uh, probably a bit of, a, I don't know if you want to just uh, one minute or so or two, but a bit of an overview. How do you see the crypto world at the moment, especially someone that has been on it for a long time? Mm -hmm. Um, I think we have like a, in 2017, in my opinion, it was a high because a lot of value was driven through ICOs. It was a lot of speculation. There were a lot of kind of gamblers also in the market. I think what we are seeing at the moment, this crypto spring, if you want to call it that way, is much more sustainable. We really see demand from family offices, from high net worth individuals, even from pension funds and from publicly traded companies. I mean, if you go, for example, on Bitcoin Treasury, treasuries.org, you see all the listed companies that actually own Bitcoin at the moment. We are printing so much money, fiat money in the world, in the US and in Europe. I think it's the perfect hedge on every balance sheet against this inflation that will come sooner or later. That's the one piece. And then we can deep dive into that later if you want. But to keep it short here, the certain or the different crypto assets have very, very distinct value drivers. Bitcoin for me, for example, is digital gold. And then, uh, yeah, we can talk about the value drivers later, but I believe that there are very distinct value drivers and they are kicking in slowly because crypto is getting more adoption worldwide. Okay, but I, I wanna as well, because there's not every day that I have an expert in crypto like you. So in terms of crypto, so just uh, on this, and I think I'm particularly interested your opinion. So we have Bitcoin passing almost the $20,000 or at least close to that. I don't know if it's today or so, but it's been a, a bit steady into the 19,000 right now. So do you think really we're going to continue that is sustainable going? Because there's a lot of people talking about 100,000. And of course, from a, from a scarcity, it makes sense eventually that Bitcoin will become bigger. But at the same time, we need to look at, okay, we have a paradox that we have right now three levels of economics. We have the economics of crypto, we have the economics of commodities and all the different things, and then we have the economics of the, the print money, which is a big uh, systemic risk because, of course, we cannot just, go, well, we can print all the money in the world as long as there's trust, 
And as long as our governments have a bit of a common sense, but sometimes there's not so much on politics. So how do you see these three worlds and especially the Bitcoin and the crypto, any other coins that you want to highlight, you touch some of them, but do you think we're going to have $100,000 Bitcoin? Um, it, it, from a logic, makes sense, but I just want to hear your opinion. And as well, these three levels of the, the, the economics financial world we are in. Yeah. Um, I mean, since I'm working in this space, I always say, or I mean, I am biased at the end of the day because I am surrounded by people that feel very, very optimistic about crypto. This is why I actually want to start the answer with the stock to flow model, because I think that's very interesting here. For me, and I think for most of the people, Bitcoin compares best to a commodity because it has a scarcity. Some Bitcoin are still getting mined and there is a, there is a global circulating supply that we have at the moment. The stock to flow ratio traditionally is used for gold and other rare metals and earths. What it says is, just to give you an example, let's say every, um, every year we find 1,000 tons of gold in the earth. And let's say there is uh, one, 1 million tons of gold um, all over the planet. Then the stock to flow ratio would be 1,000 because it would need exactly 1,000 years until the current circulating supply would get out of the earth. Uh, if this was understandable. And with Bitcoin, it's the exact same thing. I mean, a few years ago, uh, we had like every 10 minutes, 50 Bitcoin are, um, are getting mined. Then 25 Bitcoin are getting mined every 10 minutes. Then 12.5 Bitcoin got mined every uh, 10 minutes. And now actually at the moment, only 6.25 Bitcoin are getting mined every 10 minutes. And the interesting thing is now that you can exactly calculate the stock to flow ratio because we know the circulating supply of Bitcoin is very transparent. It's around, I don't know, maybe 18.5 million at the moment. And we know every 10 minutes there are 6.25 additional Bitcoin coming. And now there comes a very interesting point. Since 2011, Bitcoin is more or less following the stock to flow ratio, always. The prices we are seeing at the moment are exactly according to stock to flow ratio. And now if you calculate the stock to flow ratio for the next years, we should go first to like 100, 2000, $200,000 for Bitcoin. And then, according to the model, this is not my own projection, but according to the model, we should also pass $1 million per Bitcoin if it follows the stock to flow ratio, what it did for the last eight years, to be honest. And that is very, very interesting because it, for me, it is a commodity. And I think it's best compared to a commodity. And you have historic data that actually proved that it was following the stock to flow ratio before. And now even big banks like JP Morgan, uh, Deutsche Bank and so on also tell you, okay, probably it is fair traded at 150,000 by the end of uh, 2021. And I think that's uh, extremely interesting. So this is the value driver of Bitcoin itself. If you then look at Ethereum, just to give maybe one more example of another cryptocurrency, completely different mechanic, completely different value drivers. Ethereum is a platform where you you would create smart contracts and decentralized applications. The more, and for me, it best compares to, for example, a mobile operating system. The more developers you have on your infrastructure and the more apps, or in this instance, decentralized applications get created there, the more users you have. 
the more users you have, the more developers will develop things on the infrastructure. And at the moment, it looks like Ethereum is the winner here, especially with Ethereum 2 getting deployed and more scalability. I believe that Ethereum will be the infrastructure with decentralized applications and smart contracts. And this, and with every transaction and any application that is deployed on Ethereum, we will use gas and gas is driving the ether value. This is the intrinsic value driver of Ethereum. So very different um, value drivers, but yes, they are there. And this is why I think that the, the increase at the moment, the development is actually very healthy. No, that's very interesting. And, uh, and I agree with you. I think from a theoretical perspective is completely, uh, yeah, the sky is the limit, but of course the reality is a bit more complex and we are in a lot of things. So I would like to talk about um, blockchain and, um, and of course you are an expert as well. That there's, well, there's the blockchain technology. So that's my point that we discussed crypto. I would like to go for that. So you guys in the, in the company, uh, you've been working a lot, especially Conic Holding, in blockchain solutions and you mentioned all different verticals. So how do you see the blockchain technology and as well a bit of evolution, especially because you've been on it for a while? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so blockchain, um, let's say blockchain one, that was Bitcoin. It was um, only, it was designed to transfer value from A to B without an intermediary. That's already cool because normally if I send, if I send you money, there is a bank in, in between, you have a clearinghouse, um, you have a settlement, you have so many things in between, uh, so many intermediaries, and yet now you don't need them anymore. The technology by default does clearing and settlement. That's the good news. And that was Bitcoin. The next evolution uh, was, at least in my definition, was Ethereum, because Ethereum now allowed you to not only in one direction transfer value, but at the same time, we have a smart contract in the middle, which works like a trust. And the counterparty can now send an asset like a house, for example, real estate or something, or a car to the trust. And then only if the trust receives the money and the asset, then actually it's getting exchanged with each other. So this was for me like generation two. Generation three for me is what will happen now with Ethereum 2 and what from a scalability point of view, for example, EOS can also do is to build like Pokemon, for example, or Monopoly on blockchain that you really can do whole applications and marketplaces on blockchain. That's for me the third evolution. That may be very quick, the history, how I view it. Um, when it comes to industries and verticals, I mean, for me, tokenization is still the biggest use case of blockchain technology, because if you sum up all assets on the whole, all global assets, we are talking about 508 trillion in assets that could get tokenized, including real estate, art, um, stocks, bonds, fiat money, everything. And that's just the biggest use case by far. What use cases I love, where I'm passionate about, is, for example, the health space. Because centralized health apps so far, they never worked. Because you, get, you give your data, let's say, to Google, for example, your health data. And you know it's getting monetized behind your back. They will share it with insurance companies. They will share it with advertisements. They will share it with everyone. Which is fine. I don't blame Google for it. That's their business model. It's fine. But this is why a, health, a centralized health data never worked. 
if my health data is now um, decrypted on blockchain, for example, and is uh, private there, and I have the possibility to monetize it through a smart contract with different parties based on my uh, personal views, then I think we are running in a world where I have full control over my own data. To give you an example, um, I could now share my health data, let's say with an insurance company. And I say, okay, if you meet the threshold of let's say 89 euro, then you can have my data and you can monetize it. You can make me an offer for my insurance. But for example, if the, now the German um, Cancer Research Institute in Heidelberg wants to use my data, I say, you don't need to pay me money. You can have my data, it's fine. I know you're doing research with it. I know I'm having an impact and doing something positive for the world. So I think control of your own data is one of the coolest use cases of blockchain uh, technology. Um, another thing or another industry or vertical uh, is supply chain. I believe in the supply chain, it's a huge use case. Let's say your bananas that are getting imported from Morocco to let's say uh, Lisbon, for example, because you're in Portugal. Um, today- I actually some... in London. Oh, yeah. oh, London, yeah, London. <laughs> um, the, the bananas get there and today you would just trust uh, the shipping company that they say, yeah, the, uh, the containers they had 16 degrees, for example. Yeah, it was measured, I saw it, yeah, it was 16 degrees, and okay, yeah, that's fine. But instead, today, you can put an NFC chip there who's always sending the data in every second from the container to a blockchain and saves the data there. Was it always actually transported at 16 degrees? And this is like through the help of we call it smart oracles. The NFC chip in this uh, instance is a smart oracle because it's the oracle that brings data on the chain. It's a hardware oracle. We have also um, software oracles that would be API keys, for example, that could send money to the blockchain. And the third thing we are having is actually the use case of Chainlink, another top 10 cryptocurrency, is a consensus oracle. So basically there has to be a consensus before data gets on the blockchain. And I think that's extremely interesting in the supply chain space to see how smart oracles can put trusted data onto blockchain and then on the blockchain, it's immutable, it's trusted, it's not hackable. And I think then we are having a very, very transparent um, world and a very clean supply chain. No, I'm, I'm completely with you and I think this is going to be but but I think one question I don't want to go too technical but uh, is a passion of mine the ch challenge is the governance because in order to create this we need to have an international global governance that we don't have right now so being you on working with a lot of regulators in asset management that funds how do you see that because the point is that at the moment the governments don't agree with anything and we have a big challenge so that means if let's say your economic holding creates a solution to make the supply chain between uh, UK, German, where I am, and you are, you are, it's still a big uh, complex, but this has to make a digitization of, like I said, we have to tokenize not only the assets, but as well all the regulatory parts, and as well we need to find the balance between these different countries, because you cannot just, I think I know that a lot of liberals, especially in the US, they think they can work without countries, but we still need countries. So how do you see that part? Yeah, per first of all, yes, I'm not the burn the government kind of guy. Um, I personally, I, I have, I have trust into governments to a certain extent, and I also have trust to a certain extent into our central banks. 
And for example, money printing and um, the buyback of uh, corporate and national bonds, for example, they all make sense from a macroeconomic uh, point of view. But still, I think it's not healthy what we have done to our balance sheets in the last 20 years. I think it's very, very unhealthy. And I personally would recommend everyone to hedge at least a certain percentage for example, in cryptos. But this was not your uh, major question. Your major question was, of course, um, blockchain regulation. What makes me sad, especially in Europe, is we have some frameworks like GDPR, for example, or PSD2, that are Europe-wide. And that's perfect because every country has the same rules. We can work on common solutions. We can work on common businesses. Every startup in every country has the same chance with the same regulatory environment. But then we're coming to, let's say, real estate. Real estate is different in Germany, it's different in Portugal, different in Spain, it's different everywhere because we just have everywhere our national regulation around it. And that's what makes it so difficult to tokenize real estate because our data is extremely heterogeneous and the regulation in the countries is very, very different from each other. And that, that's a huge problem. I mean, for crypto, it's not the biggest, or for financial assets in general, it's not the biggest problem because every financial vehicle you create, you can um, get it approved in one EU country, for example, and then passport it to the union. That's fine. But for things where it's really about national law, about um, things that are different from country to country, you cannot really scale it. And that's a huge issue, especially in the field of blockchain. Because... Um, yeah, this is just not going well. I believe that the European Union should have everywhere um, standardized regulation. That's my personal view. I, I subscribe completely. And I think you're right that uh, we need to make a bridge between governments and non-governments and, and create a balance, especially as the digital transformation and we create digital twins of all society. Because I think the challenge is that if you synthesize and summarize this blockchain technology, is first of all a digital twin or a technology that enables a digitalization of our society. But it's a long discussion. We might have a yeah. second call on that. So I want to wrap up uh, and we've been passing one hour. It's been fascinating and I have a lot of uh, things to ask you. So I will probably just two more questions. Um, and then probably I, I will probably want to have a second one, but I know that you're going to be in some summits and things like that. So one of the things is, so being someone that is on the cutting edge between finance, investment, trading, and as well, um, innovation and investing in startups and creating a lot of solutions. How do you see, especially the challenge we're facing with digital transformation, which we touched partly, but as well, especially with COVID-19 and all this, uh, in one end, all the debt that is coming out of this and as well, the damage destruction of, uh, for instance, in the UK, I think the bump was announced yesterday by the UK government uh, that is the worst in 300 years, which is worse than the Second World War and the First World War, to say less. Um, and then of course, I think this is kind of very clear numbers, but this is affecting all the world economy. So in one end, companies like ours are strong because of digital, but everyone is facing and no one knows what is going to happen because printing money only can go until a certain point. So I would like to hear... In one end, digital transformation. In one end, the money part that we are right now going for all the challenge. But as well, enlarged society, all this challenge, how do you see this? 
Oh, where to start, huh? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just try to summarize. I understand it's a big one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's start maybe on a high level. Um, the corona pandemic, and I think the results of it are very, very bad. We printed so much money all over the globe. We have so much debt. And I think what we are giving to our next generations here is absolutely irresponsible. It's irresponsible that my children, my grandchildren actually um, have to live <laughs> with the debts that we created, that our generation now unfortunately created. Yeah. So I think that's very, very bad. Um, but what I like, I mean, if you see, for example, innovative startups that um, that were created like in the last 20 years, it was always when there was a crisis. And that's very cool. I think now is your chance, I mean, for everyone to actually create something special. And I believe if you look at the funding, for example, the uh, venture capital funds now receive huge funding in the US and Europe because everyone knows, okay, now it's again time for, um, for probably big uh, innovations and for revolutions. And uh, I would encourage people to definitely look at the digital health sector because now the people have seen, first of all, how important health is and how important it is not, our capacity is limited. And we have to find to a certain extent a digital way to uh, deal with our health. And I think this is gonna be a huge, um, a huge thing. And uh, to give you another example is, for example, I'm sitting in the supervisory board of MOP, which is the biggest uh, independent financial advisor in Germany. And um, by coincidence, more or less, <laughs> um, the digital um, advising tool was implemented in January. So actually through Corona now, the people had to use it because you could not meet people anymore. So you had to actually do all of the stuff on your computer. So it was actually extremely beneficial for the company that something like this was introduced and directly used because the people had to use. So I think now a lot of people who didn't want to deal with digitalization in the last years now had to deal with it. And I think that's why we will come out of Corona, I think, stronger, um, at least in this area. I think to mention a negative side effect, a lot of companies and everyone, I think, should be aware of that. A lot of companies will be bankrupt soon. This is just a fact. I mean, at the moment, in the US especially, they're giving huge amounts to companies to let them somehow survive. But they are zombie companies. They are zombie companies. Actually, they will be bankrupt. If it's in 12 months or now, it doesn't matter. And the stock markets are severely, in my opinion, um, overvalued. Because at the moment, this is not priced in at all. We are seeing all-time highs of NASDAQ and Dow Jones um, continuously. And actually, we will see a lot of companies that will uh, have severe issues, in my opinion. I'm completely with you. I think it's really an interesting one. And I think, uh, yeah, it's quite dangerous as well. But I think the point is how we get out of this stronger, like you said, and more optimistic. So as my last part, um, so MLP is a bank as well, and you have been involved in a lot of different financial parts. So from your present companies, I don't know if you want to highlight a bit, uh, some of the things for our audience, and especially from the banking perspective, we didn't touch that too much, but that is more top level. 
Um, I don't know if you want to be being part of that bank and the other things, if you want to highlight as well, being in a traditional, at least a, a bank that as well is in one end, you have like the head of the bank and the head of the startups and the fintechs and the open banking. First of all, you have to understand the German um, two-tier system. So a, a supervisory board is not the management board, but it's also not the advisory board. So actually we are not there to give like deep advice, for example, yeah? Supervisory board is more to um, yeah, supervise the company, to um, control the numbers. It's an additional security mechanism. So actually, um, I have no operational role in the company. It's very, very clearly um, a, yeah, a supervisory role. Um, what I find in, extremely interesting because MOP is a financial, um, financial advisor and it's also a bank. And of course, it's targeting very young or pretty young academics. So people who studied law, who studied medicine, who studied uh, business, for example. And I'm seeing all the fintech trends at the moment. I'm seeing what's going on on the market. And of course, I can always give, I hope, at least valuable input from what I'm seeing um, at the market. And just to give you one example, I mean, that's one thing I'm 100% convinced of. If you're a student or a young academic, you want to create your own wealth slowly and in a smart way. This might be 100 euro per month, for example. And uh, this 100 euro per month, for example, I think it's not wise to advise now to only put it into stocks or only into gold or only into anything. I think it's already, already with 100 euro per month, I think you should be diversified. And with tokenization, the beauty is that something like real estate, you can invest maybe with seven euro 50 per month into real estate. Then maybe 22 euro 50 go to Asian stocks. Another part go maybe to US stocks. And for me also maybe one or 2% of that 100 euro go into crypto. So this is, I think, where like the startup and crypto to tokenization, tokenized world and the corporate world actually come together that you just can give a much better user experience and much more diversification to your customers and i think that's uh, very very important i subscribe so last thing and uh, appreciating we're passing one hour now we we'll try to keep it for one hour but definitely i will want to make a second one more on crypto and all the areas of innovation that you have so as a leader yeah so as a leader of iconic holding and as well a strong ecosystem of companies that that benchmarks with a lot of different areas that are cutting edge um what do you suggest and as well can you give highlights for people looking at us and as well listen to you and your organization companies and some advice but as well some of the things that you suggest or that people can actually get in contact with you our vision on a very high level is that every every asset of the world will be tokenized Technologically, that's already possible today. Then we have some issues like regulation, and of course it takes some, some time, but I believe until 2025 or 2030, all assets in the world will be tokenized. And this includes, again, real estate, this includes art, this might also include your, let's say, your, uh, your special sword in World of Warcraft or something like that. Everything on the world which has a value to you I believe will be tokenized and we will create a global 100% fungible and franchised market. And that's so beautiful because now I cannot 
Today, I have an Amazon share. I sell it to Euro. Then I take my Euro and I might buy uh, some Bitcoin. Then I go out of Bitcoin. I take my Euro again. Then I might uh, pay, my, uh, pay my rent with it and so on. But in a world where central bank digital currencies are on blockchain, in a world where my Picasso painting, which I don't have, <laughs> Just for the record, um, <laughs> is tokenized. I can now, I can now just on the global fungible market, I can exchange maybe one percent of a Picasso painting against one hundred and seven Tesla shares. I can exchange maybe one square meter of my flat uh, with maybe zero point five Bitcoin. I can really trade everything with everything, and even the fiat money will be put on blockchain and we never have to leave this ecosystem again. And in this future, also today, seven, today 70% of the world population still don't have access to financial infrastructure. It's, it's incredible. And in this future, there's no more barrier because there is no bank controlling it and there, everyone can take part in this global 100% fungible um, market and i think that's that's the real beauty about blockchain that no one in this world is uh, financially excluded anymore i mean of course we could talk about economic exclusion and polit politic exclusion this will still this will still exist you cannot change this with technology but financial exclusion doesn't exist in this future anymore and everyone can be part of our um, financial system and this is this is the vision i think for iconic crypto and where we are moving and i believe that blockchain also will provide a lot of transparency in the supply chain and um, customer clients will have much more control of their data and um, i think um yeah i think snowden would also uh, like that future <laughs> in terms of data privacy and um stuff like that and how you can reach out, I mean, you can always, uh, you can always, of course, drop me an email to um, maxlautenschläger at iconicholding.com. And maybe you can share that with your audience if you have any questions. We have a lot of great research reports about crypto and blockchain. I can definitely recommend checking out our website and uh, read those research reports. I also share um, articles quite often where I write about uh, crypto assets in particular. Um, and yes, if there are any questions, just reach out to me. Thank you so much, Max. It's been a fantastic. Uh, I have a lot of other questions, but I'll take it for a second round. Uh, I thank you for your time. It's uh, congratulations for your excellent work and as well for your passion to celebrate and as well to push things forward in a very practical and uh, coherent way because it's sometimes that's the challenge is a lot of people have the vision but they cannot put it in practice um, Thanks, so Dennis. no no it's been an honor thank you so much we'll put all links to all the things you mentioned and for your website and research uh, both on the youtube channel and the other channels thank you so much wish you a great day thanks a lot have a great day bye bye